feel kind of like God. <laughs> and then this man with the devil on his hand came and took the hat. Free Britney. Free Britney. All right, all right, all right. Just wanted to channel my inner Matthew McConaughey for the beginning of this episode. <laughs> nah, but uh, in all seriousness, hey, all you voodoos and voodolls and all you voodies in between, welcome back to Dab to Death. I am your host, Nick Nobody Savage. I'm not really going to bullshit around too much today because I've got quite an episode lined up for you. Like I mentioned in the Danbury Trashers mini-episode on Sunday, this is Charles Manson, Part 1, Helter Skelter and Homicide. But before I get into the episode, I'm going to go ahead and talk about what I'm smoking on today. So as usual, you guessed it, got some paper planes for you. Uh, I actually have some of the Snow Lotus Shatter. It is smells phenomenal, honestly. And I'm not going to lie, I've already tried it. It's probably one of the tastiest Shatters I've tried in a very long time. Um, so I'm very pleased with that. This shit is fire. Uh, I've also got a couple of grams of some shit that uh, our uh, mad scientist whipped up in the lab. He's been in there just like mixing up a few things and seeing what he can come up with. And always comes up with some really nice combinations. So I'm excited to smoke some of those. Uh, I've got a couple of Saper Plains carts here. Uh, varying strains. I don't exactly remember which ones. And then... I actually have something different for you guys. That's such a short applause. Anyway. So, today I'm also smoking on some Pink Raz Slushy Live Resin Diamonds from Stizzy. Steezy, Stizzy, whatever. But yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and start off by doing a dab of these slushy diamonds because I love me some diamonds and it's one of the first times I'm smoking something other than paper planes for you guys so there's that and uh since um got some time to kill while I get my dab ready here I decided to look up uh wanted to see if there's any like news or like true crime stuff or anything interesting going on lately and I stumbled across this story uh, a Texas man who says that a song instructed him to kill someone. So basically, police reported to a storage unit that was on fire, 
and they found the body of Cyprus Ramos. I believe Cyprus was 22 years old. 21. All right, um, so, yeah, so the police were called to the storage unit and found Cyprus Ramos's body. And basically, Cyprus had been locked inside and struck with a blunt object. And then when they looked at the security footage, they saw this guy, Alan Montemayor, basically saw him and somebody else pull up in a truck, both walk into the storage unit. Later on, he walks out by himself, locks the storage unit, drives off. Now, he claims that he had left the storage unit for a second and came back and that Ramos, Cypress Ramos, had charged at him with a baseball bat. And he's like, oh, it's self-defense. It was either him or me, which everybody that knew Cypress knew that Cypress identified as female. So I kind of feel like this is your stereotypical Texas guy goes to fuck someone, finds out that they're trans, freaks out and kills them. I feel like that's what happened. But then again, he's like, yeah, some song told me to kill him. And then they were like, oh, well, the song told Ramos to kill me. And I'm like, what the fuck music are you listening to? Alrighty, let's smoke these diamonds. Okay, okay, I'm digging the flavor. (coughs) 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 Yeah, that was definitely tasty. All right, well, shout out Stizzy. Your pink raz slushy diamonds are delicious. I picked mine up from Tree Relief Delivery. You can also pick it up at Stizzy Davis. <coughs> oh yeah, for $45, by the way. Let's get into it. Probably some of the most famous murders in the United States are the Tate and LaBianca murders committed by the Manson family in Los Angeles in August of 1969. This is not surprising when you look at the circumstances. These were shockingly brutal murders carried out in the name of a cult leader during the golden age of peace and love, and one of the victims was famous actress and wife of film director Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant at the time of the murder. Charles Manson has long since gone down in history as a delusional madman hell-bent on bringing about Helter Skelter, which was the theory of an apocalyptic race war. But the story, like so many others, has so much more to it than that. Because, I mean, like, we've all seen the videos of Charles Manson being super crazy and all. And I'm going to lay some sound clips throughout the episode so you can kind of get an idea of just how fucking crazy. But I personally have to wonder if maybe they're uh they're giving this guy a little too much credit you know because it sounds like he just did way too much fucking acid 
you know, and instead they're like, no, nah, he's this mastermind cult leader, which don't get me wrong. He kind of was a cult leader. You know, they called themselves the family. They had a compound Well, they were on a ranch. We'll call that a compound. But, uh, yeah, they kind of fit the criteria. Anywho. So one question is, did the murders continue after those fateful nights? Most everyone knows about the murders that occurred between August 8th and August 10th. First, members of the family made their way to the home of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, where they murdered Tate and four others, as well as Tate's unborn child. Then, the following night, they killed Rosemary and Lino LaBianca. Leno. Lino. Leno. Lino. Leno. I'm trying to remember how they said it now, and I can't. Anyway, Leno. I'm just gonna Leno. Leno. I'm gonna go with Leno. Leno LaBianca. Leno. Leno. Overthinking things. Okay. So they killed Rosemary and Leno LaBianca. Leno. Leno LaBianca. Stick him with Leno. But what if there were so many more murders than that? There have definitely been a few deaths surrounding the Manson family that would seem to support this belief. In addition to the Tate-LaBianca murders, there could have possibly been a series of up to 35 murders, all supposedly at the order of Charles Mills Manson. But let's start with Sharon Tate. Now, this is the, quote, official story, and then I'm also going to interlace a little bit of Tex Watson and the girls' stories and Charles Manson's stories in there because you kind of need all three of their perspectives to figure out what the truth might actually be. The date was August 8th, 1969. It was a warm summer night in Los Angeles, California, and death was headed to Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon. Tex Watson, one of Manson's most loyal followers, got in the car along with Susan Sadie Atkins, Patricia Katie Krenwinkel, also known as Big Patty, and Linda Kasabian, and drove from their compound on Spawn Ranch to the home of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. At the home that night, along with Sharon Tate, were celebrity hairdresser Jay Sebring, heiress to the Folger coffee fortune, Abigail Folger, and her boyfriend, Wojciech Frykowski, an aspiring screenwriter, as well as 18-year-old Stephen Parent, who was visiting the caretaker William Gerritsen. Apparently he was trying to sell him uh, an old radio or something that he had repaired, and William Gerritsen didn't want it, so kid was about to leave and ran into Tex Watson. Not a good guy to run into. So, Tex claimed that Charlie had instructed them to go to the house and totally destroy anyone in it. As far as the girls knew at the time, however, they were simply going on what they called a creepy crawly mission. Now, just real quick, the creepy crawly missions were where Manson would instruct his followers to break into people's homes in the middle of the night while they were sleeping and just like rearrange their furniture Maybe, like, steal one of their shoes. Just, like, random mischievous shit. And, like, you know, steal a little money and stuff, obviously, because they gotta survive. But, um, yeah, so that was what they called creepy crawly missions. So, according to the girls, they said, oh, well, we just we just didn't know what we were doing. We, you know, just, like, 
oh my god you know completely oblivious but sure sure now manson had not chosen this house completely at random in fact the house at 10050 cielo drive was one that manson had been to before which we'll go into in more depth in part two but it was the former home of terry melcher who was like a music producer and had basically come and heard Manson play some music at the ranch and kind of like strung him along for a while about getting a music deal and then just kind of like ghosted him. So, anyway. They arrived at Cielo Drive shortly after midnight on August 9th and Tex climbed a telephone pole outside the property, cutting the phone line to the residence. The four then climbed an embankment onto the grounds. I like that word, embankment. I don't know why you can't just say a fucking hill, but, you know, embankment's cool, too. As I mentioned earlier, the first person they encountered was Stephen Parent, who was leaving after his visit with Gerritsen. He pleaded with Tex and the others not to hurt him, but Watson shot him four times in the face. Yeah, this kid was in his car, driving off the property, and then... All of a sudden, Tex Watson just stands in the middle of the road and is like, stop. And the kid stops because, you know, it's the 60s. He's like, oh, what's up, man? Do you need help? And then, blam, 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 blam. It's curtains for poor Steven. Anyway. While Linda Kasabian was posted as a lookout at the gate, Tex Watson cuts open a screen, enters the home, and lets Sadie and Katie in through the front door. Um, I've also seen like several different variations to this because, um, also, no, I'm getting sidetracked from my sidetrack. Hold on. Finish the first thought. Okay. I've seen several different variations of like what happened that night. Like everybody was asleep when they came in, they were all awake and somebody knocked on the door or like text knocked on the door and then like some other shit. I, it was just, I don't know. On a side note of the side note, I came across <clears throat> I came across um, a movie called The Haunting of Sharon Tate, and it actually stars Hilary Duff as Sharon Tate, um, and Matt Smith from Doctor Who, which I fucking love Doctor Who, uh, plays Charles Manson. So if you're interested, check it out. It's totally it's a totally different take on the story. Um, basically it's from more of like a paranormal aspect because it starts off with Sharon Tate having an interview and they go, would you ever, or have you ever had what you would consider like uh, a psychic experience? And she begins to talk about these dreams she has, right? Well, more like nightmares where some people come into the home and murder her and four of her friends. Like, she even talks about, like, being strung up from the ceiling by the rope. Like, we'll get into it, but it's pretty much spot on from what actually happened. And so, apparently, she continues to have these nightmares with, like, increasing frequency as the date of the murders approaches. And the whole time, there's Charles Manson stopping by trying to find Terry Melcher. And they keep telling him, nah, man, Terry doesn't live here. Terry doesn't live here. And then he's like, he keeps dropping off these like packages and these tapes that he wants him to hear. 
And so the tapes start like playing themselves in the middle of the night. And it's like, she's being haunted by Charles Manson. And it's, it's kind of weird. It definitely, uh, it, and then it has a, it definitely has an interesting ending. So I'm not going to spoil that for you. Cause I tend to do that. But if you want to, you should check it out. I don't remember exactly where I streamed it on. I think it might've been like Amazon prime or something. Anyhow. First, Tex woke up Frykowski, who was sleeping on the couch. Again, people, back to our first episode with Richard Ramirez. Don't sleep on the couch. So Tex woke up Frykowski, who was sleeping on the couch, by kicking him in the head. When Frykowski asked who he was, Tex famously replied, I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. Well, technically, I think he said business, but work just sounds a lot cooler, and that's the line that they used in The Devil's Rejects. Shout out Rob Zombie. Tex then sent Sadie and Katie to search the rest of the house for more occupants. They found Tate, Sebring, and Folger and forced them into the living room where Tex tied rope around their necks, throwing it over a beam in the ceiling. When Sebring attempted to stand up for Tate, pointing out that she was pregnant, Tex shot him in the stomach. No good deed goes unpunished. You know what they say, right? And later would stab him seven times. Frykowski managed to get his hands untied, probably because they were only tied with a towel. Like, a towel, people? Come on. And he briefly struggled with Sadie. So that's Susan Atkins. Yeah, Charles Manson had this thing where he would, like, give people new names. He would just be like, what's your name? And she'd be like, I'm Susie. And he'd be like, nah, nah, nah. You're Sadie now. And everybody's just like, yeah, Sadie. Anyway, so he briefly struggles with Sadie and suffers some minor stab wounds to the legs before escaping out the front door and onto the porch. Unfortunately for Frykowski, Tex was able to catch up to him. He hit him in the head with the butt of his gun a few times, then stabbed him several times and shot him twice. Abigail Folger also made an attempt to escape, but she was pursued by Katie. That's Patricia Krenwinkle. Katie caught up to her in the front yard where she tackled her, stabbing her repeatedly. Like, they basically just went full murder mode at this point. It's just like, stab, stabby, stabby, stab, 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 stabby, stab, stab, stabby, stab. Are you dead? Stab. Anyway, Tex came over and helped finish her off, then returned to Frykowski, who was dragging himself across the lawn. In total, Wojciech Frykowski suffered 51 stab wounds, two gunshots, and 13 blows to the head with Tex's gun. I think it's time for a smoke break. Dabbing's a lot of work, though. I might just hit a pen. Although I really do want to hit some of that snow lotus shatter, though. So I might just do that instead. Yeah, this snow lotus is delicious smelling. And tastes better than it smells, in my opinion. And it smells pretty damn good. Or at least tastes as good as it smells. Let's go with that. Yeah, that's fucking delicious. <coughs> It uh, it should be hitting shelves in probably a week or so, 
depending on how long testing takes, but keep an eye out for it. Snow Lotus. It's fucking delicious. Really nice golden color too. Like it's a little it's a little pull snappy, but um it's good. I, I really like it. <coughs> ah, son of Bob Barker's bitch tits, that was hot. <coughs> Don't leave your carb cap on too long, folks. <coughs> oh, shit. Sheesh. All right, and now back to our regular scheduled programming. Your ad could be here. When they returned to the house, Sharon Tate began to try and plead for the life of her unborn child, even going so far as offering herself in exchange as a hostage, as long as she be allowed to live long enough to give birth. Despite all her efforts, both Sadie and Tex stabbed her 16 times, killing her and the child. According to Tex, Manson had instructed them to leave a message at the scene, and so Sadie wrote Pig on the wall using Sharon Tate's blood. Okay, remember earlier when I mentioned the other murders and how there were different sides to this story? This is one of those times. Remember the aforementioned murders. So, Atkins later claimed that she did this to mimic the murder of music teacher Gary Hinman, which I'll discuss more in part two as well. But, basically... Manson family member Bobby Boussa, oh Jesus, Boussalet, Bobby Boucher, I'm just going to call him Bobby Boucher, wrote Political Piggy on the wall with Hinman's blood. So Atkins says she did this in hopes that it would make it look like the same killer and get Bobby out of jail, Get get good old Bobby Boucher out of jail so he can go play foosball. Even though his mama says foosball is the devil. Anyway. Tex was like, oh yeah, no, it was Manson's idea. Sadie's like, no, nah, it was my idea. And that's what Manson even says. He's like, yeah, so like... And like I said, I'll really talk about this more in part two. So maybe I should just hold that for part two. But basically, Manson agrees. He was like, nah, that was the girl's idea. In fact, Manson claims at one point that the girl's... It was their idea to murder somebody in the first place. Not even his idea. He just happened to suggest a house. So, now we will talk about the La Bianca murders. Apparently Charlie wasn't very happy with how sloppy the murders the night before had gone. So this time he decided to go with Tex, Sadie, Katie, and Linda, as well as Leslie, Lulu, Van Houten and Stephen Clem Grogan. So, Manson instructed them, and again, remember, this is the official story. Manson instructed them to drive to the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, and they wound up at 3301 Waverly Drive, the home of supermarket exec Lino LaBianca and his wife Rosemary, who was the co-owner of a dress shop. 
again, they did not find themselves here completely by chance, as it was next door to a house where Manson and his family had attended a party the year before. Upon arriving at the LaBianca residence, we get two different versions of what happened next. According to Sadie and Linda, Charles Manson slipped off on his own, and then returned to let them know that the residence had been tied up. According to Tex, Manson had returned to get him and had him assist in entering the home and securing Leno and Rosemary. You know, the more I say it, I'm starting to think it's Leno. But fuck it. I'm past that. Let's go. <laughs> but fuck it. Yeah, anyway. Once the couple was bound with lamp cords and had pillowcases over their heads, Manson left the house and Katie and Lulu entered with instructions to kill them. Tex had complained to Manson about the quality of weapons at the murders the night before, so he had come better prepared this time, with a chrome-plated bayonet. Tex sent the girls into the bedroom where Rosemary was tied up and then began to stab Lino LaBianca several times with the bayonet, the first thrust going through his throat. Like, straight through. Like, uh, what's that called? Uh, laryngectomy? Isn't that where they have to, like, just cut a hole into your, like, throat and just... Tracheotomy. That's what I'm fucking thinking of. He fucking tracheotomied that guy. Anyway, he then heard a struggle coming from the bedroom, and when he entered the room, he saw Rosemary LaBianca fending off Katie and Lulu by swinging a lamp at them. Ironically enough, it was the very lamp that was tied to her neck. After stabbing Rosemary repeatedly with the bayonet, Tex returned to the living room and continued to stab Lino. He stabbed him a total of 12 times and then carved war into his stomach. When he returned to the bedroom, he found both Katie and Lulu stabbing the then-dead body of Rosemary. During the trial, it was revealed that a majority of the 41 stab wounds were inflicted post-mortem. So yeah, basically there's like... A scene in pretty much anything you watch about this where fucking Lulu just snaps and just starts fucking... But I'm pretty sure Lulu didn't start stabbing her until she was already dead. So, there's that. While Tex cleaned off the bayonet and showered, Katie wrote the words rise and death to pigs on the wall. And helter skelter, which was a misspelling of helter skelter on the refrigerator, all in the LaBianca's blood. She then stabbed Lino 14 times with a carving fork that she left sticking out of his stomach, and then stabbed a steak knife into his throat. As all of this was going on at the LaBianca home, Manson had taken the car with the remainder of the group to Venice, where he instructed them to go to the apartment of an actor and kill him, leaving them to find their own way back to Spawn Ranch. According to Linda Kasabian, she supposedly thwarted his plan by knocking on the wrong door, so they left the building. Now, let's look at the aftermath of those August nights. A month or two after the murders, Manson was able to finally convince his family to move out to the desert to hide out, which he had been preaching about for months, which ties in with the whole helter-skelter thing, and again, I will discuss that way more in episode 2. If you believe the official version of things, this was to hide out from the inevitable backlash from the murders that would supposedly kick off the race war that would bring about the end of the white man. This again ties into Charlie's helter-skelter 
theory. However, if you believe Charlie, it was simply to hide out and get away from the dark cloud that had come to hang over Spawn Ranch since the murder of Gary Hinman. Whatever the reason, the Tate and LaBianca murders had gained national attention, and investigators were trying desperately to put together the pieces of what happened on those nights. As the months went by, investigators turned up no leads, which is hilarious when you consider that it was really just a bunch of drugged-out hippies that committed the murders. Then again, these cops were fucking idiots, basically. They had, quote, ruled out any connections between the Tate and LaBianca murders, and despite the medical examiner making several connections between the Hinman and Tate murders during the Tate autopsies, Prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi, aha, there he is, uh, Prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi ignored them because Hinman was a, quote, nothing case. Meanwhile, the family attempted to return to some form of normalcy. What is normalcy for a bunch of people on acid? Huh. However, things had already gone past the point of no return. In the early morning hours of August 16th, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department executed a raid on Spawn Ranch. Ironically enough, they weren't there to arrest the Manson family for the murders of Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, Jay Sebring, Stephen Parent, or Leno and, Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. They were actually there on suspicion that the family was involved in a string of car thefts, which they were. I mean, come on. They would steal Volkswagens along with members of a motorcycle gang called Satan's Slaves. Pretty badass name. Be a cool name for a band. And they converted them into dune buggies. Again, part two. Luckily for Manson and his followers, and unluckily for the cops, they had put the wrong date on the arrest warrant and everyone was allowed to go free. This only added to Manson's growing paranoia, however. Next, let's look at another one of those murders that is attributed to Charles Manson. And that is the murder of Donald Shorty Shea. On August 26th, less than 20 days after the Tate-LaBianca murders, Charles Manson, Tex Watson, Bruce Davis, and Steve Grogan were involved in another murder, that of Donald Shorty Shea. Manson and Shea had a long-standing dislike for each other, but the story goes that Charles Manson ordered the death of Shea because he believed that he had informed on them, leading to the August 16th raid. Another possible reason behind the murder was the bad blood between Manson and Shea. Shea had beaten Manson after he learned that Manson had assaulted Wendy Buckley, who worked at Spawn Ranch and was Shea's cousin, over a disagreement over borrowing her truck. Basically, they wanted to use her truck to go commit a bunch of crimes, and she wasn't down for it. So, I know I said I was going to introduce some sound clips of Manson, and I just wanted to take a moment to do that now. Um, basically... This is some of the craziest things that Manson has said, and I get a laugh out of it every single time. Like, one of my personal favorites is the one where he makes all the goofy faces, because they were like, they're like, who are you, or something like that, and he just goes, and then he just goes, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. So yeah, I'll just play it for you now. I tried to stop Nixon, and I stopped him dead in his tracks. I tried to stop the Vietnam War, and I did it. 
You know, the gate's open. You know, do your thing, man. Here, give him some coke. All Charlie's friends get free coke. What did you do? I do the best thing I know how. Nothing. I f I play music and I smoke a little grass now and then. You Google terribly get the legal bridges? Why don't you blame the little babies? I did not break the law. Jesus Christ told you that 2,000 years ago. You don't understand me. That's your trouble. Not my fault because you don't understand me. I don't understand you either. I'm just another guy walking down the road going, how many times I got to go to the lady? Where's God at? I've got a face and I'm praying for bread. What is it? People look at you today, 20 years later, and they still have no idea what you're about. Tell me in a sentence who you are. So like I said, we're supposed to believe that that guy orchestrated everything? I don't know about that. Anyway, back to the story. As I mentioned earlier, after the raid, the Manson family relocated further out into the desert and ended up at two separate ranches, Myers Ranch and Barker Ranch. It was here in Death Valley that the family was supposedly looking for the cave that would grant them access to the bottomless pit. Again, part two, people. You gotta tune in. So they basically were going into this pit to wait out the, ra the coming race war. In about mid-October, the investigators on the LaBianca case, who were still working completely separately from the Tate investigators, were looking into similar murders and came across the files on the Hinman murder. Upon learning that the Hinman detectives had spoken to Bobby Boucher's girlfriend, Kitty Lutzinger, they realized that she, along with Manson and several other members of the family, had been arrested just days before and were currently in custody. That's right, just days before, another raid for car thefts and weapons charges had been carried out by a joint task force of National Park Rangers, California Highway Patrol, and the Inyo County Sheriff's Office on both Myers and Baker ranches. Oddly enough, Manson himself almost avoided capture during this raid by hiding in a cabinet. Had it not been for some of his hair sticking out of the door, the CHP officer that arrested him would never have checked that cabinet as he said that it, quote, seemed too small for a man to fit into. Yeah, Charles Manson was a tiny little scraggly guy. So, the LaBianca team was starting to put the pieces together as they were getting information from a biker gang that Manson had previously tried to hire or recruit as bodyguards back at Spawn Ranch. But ultimately, it was Susan Sexy Sadie Atkins' big mouth that got them all caught. On December 1st, 1969, warrants were issued for the arrest of Charles Tex Watson, Patricia Big Patty Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian in connection with the Tate murders. The connection between the murders and Leslie Lulu Van Houten had not been made yet. Um, or just to clarify, um, basically Sadie had, you know, was in jail or like whatever and like confessed to one of her cellmates. She's like, oh yeah, you know, like we totally killed those people. We were the ones that did that shit. And of course, the cellie went straight to the fucking cops because 
don't tell people in jail like your shit. Just don't. They will use it to try and get out of jail because it's jail. So it wasn't long before they were all picked up and the trial began on June 15th, 1970. Linda Kasabian was the star witness for the prosecution, and since she had not actively participated in the murders, she was offered immunity in exchange for her testimony. Manson was briefly allowed to act as his own attorney, which must have been fucking hilarious, I would love to see that, but this permission was revoked shortly before the trial began. Like most tales of homicide to come out of Hollywood, the trial quickly became a spectacle. I mean, it's Charles Manson. He's a little crazy. On the first day of testimony, July 24th, Manson entered the courtroom with an X carved into his forehead, and many of his female followers followed suit. Members of the family would loiter around the halls and doorways of the courts, some issuing threats to witnesses in an attempt to stop them from testifying. On October 5th, which is actually my birthday, fun fact, I guess, uh, after being denied a request to question one of the prosecution's witnesses that his defense attorneys had declined to cross-examine, Manson leapt across the table and attempted to attack the judge. He was quickly taken down by the bailiffs, however, but after this it is rumored that Judge Older began wearing a revolver underneath his judge's robes, just in case. And now we come to the end of our story. On November 16, 1970, the prosecution rested its case, and three days later the defense did the same, without calling a single witness. As the trial was coming to an end, Ronald Hughes, who was representing Leslie Van Houten, disappeared while on vacation. It is rumored that the Manson family was behind his disappearance, but this has never been confirmed. On January 25, 1971, the jury returned guilty verdicts for all four of the defendants on all 27 of the charges against them, and on April 19th, Judge Older sentenced them to death, which was later changed to life without parole after the death penalty was suspended in California. So where are they now? Susan Atkins stayed in prison until she died in 2009 from brain cancer. She was 61 years old. When she died, she was California's longest-serving female inmate and had been denied parole 14 times. Patricia Krenwinkel is still incarcerated and is now the longest-serving female in the California correction system. Her parole has been denied 14 times, with the latest of these times being in 2017. Leslie Van Houten was the youngest of the Manson family to be tried, and at the time of her sentencing was the youngest woman on death row. She remains incarcerated and her parole has been denied 22 times, mostly recently in 2019. Charles Tex Watson has been denied parole 17 times, 2021 being the most recent, and he remains incarcerated, claiming he is a born-again Christian. Charles Mills Manson remained in prison until his death on November 19, 2017, from respiratory failure and colon cancer, just past his 83rd birthday. As I mentioned, this was just about the murders. You know, this was the uh, Helter Skelter and Homicide episode, basically. Uh, in next week's episode, we'll get a little more into who Charles Manson was, who the Manson family was, 
uh, his connection to Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, and actually Dennis Wilson's connection to one of the stars of Euphoria. Stay tuned to find out who. Unless you already know, but whatever, you should still stay tuned. So as I pointed out earlier, it's no wonder that this story became so famous. Sharon Tate was one of the biggest movie stars in the world at the time. Well, maybe not in the world, but at least in, you know, Hollywood, in the United States maybe. But she was a big star, and she was married to Roman Polanski, who was a huge filmmaker. And then you have, of course, Abigail Folger, who was like, you know, heiress to the Folger fortune. So let me know what you guys thought of the story and the episode you can always send your feedback to feedback at dabtodeath.com or message me on any of the social medias at dabtodeath unless you're on instagram then it's at dabtodeath podcast and remember to tune in next week for manson part two i haven't come up with a clever name yet yeah that's not what i'm calling the episode but i just haven't come up with a clever name yet so stay tuned for that other than that have a great week and be careful out there because you never know when you may get dabbed to death